Welcome to the DTB podcast for February 2021, volume 59, number two. My name is David Fazakli. I'm DTP's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you once again for joining us for this podcast. This one we're recording at the beginning of January. Uh, afraid to say that here in the UK, we're just entering a more restrictive lockdown. Uh, schools are closed and people instructed to work from home. I think a slight variation um, issued across the four home countries, but I think we're likely to be in this situation for some time. Uh, but interestingly, in the vaccine news corner, things have, have moved on. Um, the Pfizer vaccine started being used at the, uh, during December. The AstraZeneca vaccine has been rolled out under the same approval process. Um, and the other big change is we've now delayed the second dose until 12 weeks after the first. James, any thoughts on the vaccine update or even the change to the schedule? I think uh, interesting, very interesting. And of course, a lot of vaccination sites have already started vaccinating. In fact, a whole number of them locally were about to give their second dose of vaccine three weeks after the first two cohorts. And there has been a lot of discussion about whether they should go ahead with doing that or delay it for the 12 weeks as planned. Locally, um, our nine practices have decided to come together and have a single huge vaccination site at Newbury Racecourse. So we are going to be starting that up. We're phase six, um, which means we'll be starting probably vaccinating the week beginning the 11th of January. And I hope by the time this podcast goes out, we'll be we'll have the bit between our teeth. I don't know how many more horsey things I can say, but and we'll be out of the blocks and we'll be hopefully vaccinating huge numbers. We're looking hopefully to vaccinate perhaps as many as two and a half thousand a week if we can. So we're planning to come up late on the rails and move very fast once we get going so that's taking up a good deal of of mental and time and effort and obviously at the same time we're seeing about a still seeing about a 25 percent increase in our workload just general day-to-day medicine with obviously because of the this new variant a significant increase in the number of covid positive patients as well and perhaps we should offer a prize for anyone who can count how many horse-related metaphors you managed to get into that uh, <laughs> last week. I mean, from 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 the question over the change in the vaccination schedule, what's the is is there a clear view on whether this was a good thing to have done or not? I think the overall view is it seems sensible. It seems sensible because we do have data. Obviously, patients who were undergoing the vaccination trials were being regularly reviewed in the three-week gap or four-week gap with the AstraZeneca vaccine between their first and their second vaccine. So we know that, you know, we have got um, some evidence, if you like, that in that immediate period, once about a week had passed from your first vaccine, that there was an element of protection. And I think we know from just general vaccination knowledge that actually the gap that you have between the first vaccine and the second to create a a good response, um, actually very often the longer the better to a certain point of view. So I I think there is a general acceptance that this is a way of really being able to move much faster. Um, I I try to work out what it means in the way of how many more patients we can vaccinate in in a short period of time, but it certainly has a significant impact on that. And we'll have to see, you know, we'll have to see how it goes. It may well be that if we manage to move very fast, we can actually 
shrink that 12 weeks down and actually get people vaccinated for their second one sooner. So I think it's, I think it's about really ramping up the NHS efforts and seeing how fast we can move. And we'll then perhaps be able to modify the approach when we know how good our vaccination centres are. I mean, it struck me that this was, although you know, the ev- hard evidence isn't there to show that this is what you can, what, what you should do. There is enough evidence and expertise around both you know, from the JCVI and their expert advisors um, and past experience with vaccine to say that actually it's quite a sensible thing to, to extend the coverage to as many people as possible. Yes, there's some inconvenience, isn't there, for those people who were expecting to get their second jab much sooner. Um, and a bit of bureaucracy in changing their appointments. But actually, the benefits of reaching more people sooner seem to, to outweigh those those difficulties. I, I think so. And I think it's almost a case of if you're trying to put out a fire, a single, perhaps thin fire blanket over the whole fire might actually work better than a thick blanket over part of it. I mean, that may be stretching my metaphors a bit far, but I think I think you're right. I think particularly the fact we want to really try and get on top of it for those groups most at risk and I think this is a way of doing that as I said I think there's every possibility that actually it may well be that 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 12 weeks will be able to shrink once the NHS gets really going with this vaccination uh, trial. Okay well let's get down to business and talk about the content of of the February issue so a quick overview of our editorial We'll talk about a common prescribing cascade problem, review the main article, and then talk a bit about the case reports. So let's start with the editorial. And I suppose we continue with the theme of vaccines and highlight their importance. James, do you want to say a bit more about this? Yeah, this, this, is, um, this is a bit of good news from uh, Julian, one of our editors, uh, who has looked at the evidence around two of the vaccinations that actually we've been using now for over a decade in one case, and that's the human papillomavirus introduced in 2008 to prevent cervical cancer, and also the herpes zoster virus vaccine that's been used now for for some years as well. And I suppose what what he's pointing out is actually that the, the science behind vaccination is is really so good that you know it they do play a major part in maintaining health what was the what were the findings of the hpv study yes yeah, so uh, julian looked at um a swedish study that demonstrated that the instance rate in patients uh who were unvaccinated for cervical cancer sits at around sort of probably about five per hundred thousand person years but actually in a group who had been vaccinated that instant was about a third of that and actually if you look at those patients who received their vaccination under the age of 17 it was about a tenth of that so i I was trying to do some maths on this and i I seem to remember that the death rate from cervical cancer in in england is about 2,000 people a year so we're going to be saving about 1800 lives a year from this treatment obviously once it's going to there's going to be a lag isn't there because obviously people don't die from their cervical cancer until perhaps into their 30s or 40s on the whole but i think it's just a fascinating insight when we think back to the controversy there was about vaccinating schoolgirls of 12 and 13 with this and 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 the sort of concerns about what that meant and now seeing that actually we're seeing you know a, a, a drop to a tenth probably of the rate of of cervical cancer i think that's a you know it's, it's a significantly important public health uh, improvement 
I mean, it's important to note that, I mean, it was an observational study, uh, but it just builds up, doesn't it, that picture that actually, in terms of other studies that have reported similar things, that this, this is showing good news all around. Absolutely, and you're quite right. Obviously, one of the difficulties is is getting the numbers, but absolutely right. And and you know, it was the same with the the herpes zoster vaccination, which has been I think run since 2013. Although it's been a bit funny because they had issues with availability, didn't they, to begin with? So it was sort of staggered in a in a fashion over some years. But despite there only being about a 65% uptake, they've you know looking at the the work, it looks as if there's probably about 40 to 41,000 fewer consultations over five years from herpes zoster complications. And that probably amounts to about 1,800 less hospitalizations as well. So once again, a significant impact. And I think personally, uh, as a GP, I've seen one case of um, post-herpatic neuralgia in the last five years. It seems to have disappeared. And I think of all those patients we used to see and you to try all different sorts of medication and treatment for it. I mean, that is a remarkable change. So it'd be interesting to see whether, I mean, th- these clearly are good news stories, but it'd be interesting to see whether interest in general in vaccination increases following the, the pandemic. It, we, we yet to see what the demand is for the COVID vaccine, but it'd be interesting to see whether that has an effect on overall vaccination rates and whether people start to accept you know, that vaccination is generally a good thing. I, I think you're right. And I think what's fascinating is a lot of professionals in, in, in my position have squirreled away to look at, you know, messenger RNA and work out what's it all about and, you know, understand it all. And there's been some very good um, nature studies and uh, nature articles on messenger RNA vaccines. And I think it really is a very exciting area. And, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting my jab. You know, I think we're going to see, I would like to think anyway, a real new dawn if you like for vaccination because i think the ability to be able to create vaccinations more quickly now now that's been demonstrated just as safely it's not like the elements of vaccination development have been changed it's the fact that all that time wasted in between each element of it has been cut down i think there's going to be a real uh, sort of yeah a real opportunity to, to to make not just fantastic vaccines for uh viruses but also for cancer treatments so good news all around. Okay, um, let's have a look at a quick look at a DTP select item. This one highlights a classical prescribing cascade problem. What was the prescribing cascade? Yeah, so this this is a as you say an absolute classic one. So this is what they looked at. It was a retrospective cohort study of about forty one thousand patients who had been started on a calcium channel blocker. I think most of them had been started on amlodipine, and they compared what happened to those patients over the next ninety days with those with another group of patients, about sixty six thousand who had been started on an ACE inhibitor, and another comparative group of about two hundred thirty thousand people who had just been started on any drug and they just looked at what happened and looked at who was most likely to be diagnosed a loop diuretic and basically they demonstrated that the patients who had started on a calcium channel blocker were about twice as likely to have been started on a loop diuretic at um, 90 days and I think at one year that had actually increased actually to almost three percent of all those patients. Interesting enough if you looked at any type of diuretic actually about 9% of patients ended up on, a di- on any diuretic who'd been started on a calcium channel blocker. And certainly, I, I think from you know, my own personal experience, it is the case that if you start a patient on a calcium channel blocker alone, 
they will come back and show you their swollen ankles. And the message from from the authors was that, that actually diuretics are no help whatsoever in in the peripheral edema caused by calcium channel blockers. Yes, I mean that that was fascinating because that's not my experience. Well, put it this way: patients don't tend to come back saying it's still swollen. But but uh, as they point out, that they feel that calcium channel blockers swelling peripheral edema is not caused by fluid retention, but actually precapillary arteriolar dilation and they don't recommend any diuretics i mean there were some issues with this study because it didn't record the indications or reasons for prescribing and of course if you've got a patient the average age i think of these patients was 75 and if you had a patient who actually was still uh, hypertensive then actually moving from a calcium channel blocker to a thiazide diuretic might actually be a very sensible thing to do in in trying to control their blood pressure but in general using a diuretic just for peripheral edema is not good medicine it's just as you say it is just a prescribing cascade which might lead to more falls more urinary incontinence or or more renal damage and of course i think most of us can recognize a whole lot of other sort of prescribing cascades that go on sometimes and i guess particularly the issue about and they were primarily looking at loop diuretics, weren't they? Which was, I, I can understand, as you say, the, the addition of a thiazide to somebody who's, who's got hypertension, and it may not have been for the calcium channel blocker induced peripheral edema at all. But the use of loop diuretics does seem unnecessary in this population. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and I think, you know, I think the difficulty with this is that is that you know you are you end up chasing your tail you're, you're trying to achieve something and uh patients just end up on polypharmacy and we see it all the time you know analgesia is a big area isn't it it's it's very rare that someone tries a certain analgesic and if it doesn't work says let's stop it and try a different one what we invariably do is add another one on and that just creates a whole new set of adverse effects and uh, interactions which can just be detrimental to the patient. Okay thank you for that and perhaps that leads us neatly on to the main article uh, which looks at prescribing indicators to help improve the safe use of medicines and I suppose looking for adverse effects and, and harmful effects is, is part of that. Do you want to give a brief brief overview? Yeah, so this is um, it's, it, this is quite a theoretical article, but it was interesting. It's basically addressing the iatrogenic harm through medication and looking at some of the safety indicators, some of the prescribing safety indicators or PSIs that have been used or are now being developed to pick up these issues of inappropriate prescribing. And actually what's, what's the bit that I found quite interesting was also seeing how you can use these effectively. You know, there's one thing to say, we've got this good indicator that will demonstrate if this is safe prescribing or not, but there's another thing for it to actually have an impact on the outcomes you want to see, which is things like reduce hospitalizations, reduce death, reduce um, adverse effects. So uh, an, a, an interesting article looking at a really important area, because let's be honest, you know, we are now prescribing one billion scripts a year in England. I mean, it just, just is just remarkable, isn't it? One billion scripts a year, 8% of the total NHS budget is spent on this medication. And it's probably responsible for anything between two to 15% of hospital admissions, that's adverse, adverse effects is responsible for two to 15% of hospital admissions. And if you look at it globally, 
the WHO suggests that probably 1% of all health costs go on medication errors. I, I can't help thinking that must be an underestimate. But uh, anyway, it's still a huge, it's a huge figure thinking about it globally. And things that struck me as well were, were clearly you need a range of approaches in terms of tackling this whole, whole issue. There isn't a one fix that will do it, do it all. Um, and they, I think they looked at things like audit and feedback and education outreach and, and, and informatics. What was also interesting was that they delved a bit deeper into some of the initiatives that have been shown to have an effect, things like the pincer model um, and the, the, those that give feedback to primary care. But what struck me was the question of, well, you've got to have somebody who monitors them and takes action on, on each of these indicators. And, and who does that in practices? Absolutely right. And I think, I think I, to be honest, I, I do think this is an area where actually probably in the UK we can pat ourselves a little bit on the back because we do have medicine optimization teams in most areas. You know, we do look at this sort of thing continually. I, you know, I'll get a pincer, a notification through from one of the admin team who monitors this. And, I, you know, I remember we're talking about 30 years ago now. I remember I was a bright young GP and I uh, was involved in MAG. Do you remember MAG? Yes. Yeah, Medical yeah, audit. Audits Advisory Group. And yep. I went to a practice and I was talking about some medication issue. I think it might have been using aspirin in patients with ischemic heart disease. And the partners just said to me, well, of course, we always do that. And I sort of said, well, how do you know? Well, we just do it, you know. And, and I think we've come such a long way from that, haven't we? Such a long way. And I think, you know, we do have an enormous number now of prescribing safety indicators, which, which are used. I think you're right. I think there's something about being coordinated about them. I think there's, they, they all have a different part to play. There are things like open prescribing, which is a bit like the old EPACT data that you can look at and think, oh, why are we so different from a neighboring practice on the amount of X that we prescribe? And that's sort of one level of prescribing, but also things like pincer, or just the sort of thing that now comes up with your IT systems that says, boy, you know, why, why are you doing this? This patient's got on this drug or whatever it might be. You know, there's a whole range of different prescribing safety indicators. And I think it's about working out which ones will create the outcome that you want, which is safer prescribing and which doesn't sort of um, wear the prescriber out to a point where they perhaps even start to ignore them. Yes, because you don't want so many red flashing lights that you just decide not to look at any of them. You need to have the right ones at the right time um, and f to give you the focus that you need rather, rather than just mesmerised by, oh dear, everything's going badly, badly wrong. Yeah, and I think what's fascinating about this study was that they also talk about, which I hadn't even thought about, they also talk about actually how important it is to get these indicators to be more holistic, to actually look at the patient rather than just look at the drugs that you're prescribing. And I think that is so important. I think being patient-centered is where, because this can be quite draconian. You know, it can be that, you know, you could be the safest prescribing doctor in the world and as a consequence actually not be doing your patients any good at all. You know, and I think sometimes where it's particularly difficult is where you have patients who aren't the mainstream, who don't tick all the boxes that mean that you can follow guidance to the absolute letter these are patients who sit outside that slightly who perhaps have drug reactions which means that you can't use perhaps the safest option and you've got to think about using the unsafest and then it's about really making sure that you can still prescribe as safely as possible 
within those parameters. So I think that was interesting. I hadn't clocked the concept that actually we need to add the patient to a uh, prescribing safety indicator. Okay, and then finally, this month's case report, uh, large vessel vasculitis induced by an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Um, immune checkpoint inhibitors? Yeah, so I, I had to look this up, I'll be honest with you, because um, this is a whole new area for me. But uh, this was a case report of a 67-year-old man with advanced prostate cancer who developed large vessel vasculitis having been treated with monoclonal antibodies, in particular ipilimumab and nivolumab. And these were, as you say, um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. And these are a new range of drugs that block certain inhibitory pathways that actually allow T-cell activity to be activated, if you like. So it really lets the T-cell mount a, a bigger immune response, an anti-tumor immune response. And of course, by doing that, they can also cause a wide range of immune-related events in multiple organs. And this case report basically talks about this 67-year-old chap who um, developed thyroiditis, colitis, and a significant vasculitis in the main aorta and a lot of the um, branches off its subclavian and common iliac. So a significant reaction to his treatment for his prostate cancer. And how did they manage it? Well, thank goodness for prednisolone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> uh, it basically yeah, suppressed it all with, with hefty doses of methyl prednisolone. I think the other interesting thing about this case report was that this, this man presented with really advanced prostate cancer and four years down the line was still actually doing very well. And I think we just got to remind ourselves how impressive the development of treatment for a lot of the cancers has been in the last decade. And I think the bottom line was that these are, these are new treatments and I guess our experience with them is, is still quite, quite limited and therefore being aware of the range of adverse effects they can, they can cause is, is, is important and, and that sort of widening of our knowledge of, of, of harms is, is important. Absolutely. And I think, I think this man's reaction occurred about 12 days after his first treatment and I suspect he wouldn't have been an inpatient at that time. So it's for all of us to be aware, really, if anyone presents with any element of odd reactions, particularly just immediately after um, oncology treatment or any treatment with a monoclonal antibody, it's really important you liaise with the team and make sure that nothing more or make sure nothing needs doing really. Absolutely. Is it the drug? But um, okay, thank you very much. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Uh, if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or comment on the iTunes site. It would be great to hear from you. Uh, you can find a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Or you can email us in the old-fashioned way at dtb at bmj.com. Many thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us for... March's podcast and let's hope we've got better news on our lockdown by then. Bye.